Hello, I'm Christina Corbin, and welcome to House of Broken Dreams, the Jennifer Cassie story. In this multi-part true crime podcast, we examine Jennifer's mysterious disappearance from Orlando, Florida. The year was January 2006. George Bush was president. Abroad, our nation is committed to an historic long-term goal. We seek the end of tyranny in our world. The country was mired in the Iraq war. More than 130 Iraqis and five U.S. soldiers were killed in at least 10 separate attacks across the country. And New Orleans was still rebuilding five months after Hurricane Katrina. 400,000 people were displaced, and less than 100,000 of them have been able to return home. The 24-hour cable news cycle had no shortage of compelling stories. The Kentucky mine explosion is another in a string of deadly accidents. Where the real estate crisis is changing this landscape. Fierce winds are fueling Russian house fires through Southern California. And yet in the barrage of national headlines, another story was gaining traction. This morning, investigators in Orlando are trying to track down a missing woman. Jennifer Kessie was last heard from on Monday, and police say something about this story is just not adding up. Kessie's 5'8", 135 pounds. She's blonde with green eyes. If you have any information at all, the slightest tip, call Crimeline right away. Jennifer Kessie, a 24-year-old Orlando woman, disappeared on January 24th, 2006. Jennifer was smart, successful, and beautiful. She was a finance manager at a well-known timeshare company, her third promotion in less than a year. She was street-savvy and responsible, and she had just bought herself a condominium with her own money, a rite of passage into adulthood, and an impressive one at that. That needs to be caught. You want to do a quick fade here, or do you want to just, you know... At the time, I was working my first job at Fox News on the breaking news desk, and living alone in my first New York City apartment. Jennifer's story was captivating to me. She'd gone missing in Orlando, near the home of Disney, a place visited by millions of children every year. A place we think of as safe. She was also relatable. Jen could have been anyone's daughter, anyone's sister. Her parents reminded me so much of my own. And the mere fact that she randomly vanished from a quiet apartment complex, made many stop and think. If that could happen there, it could happen anywhere. I remember calling the Orlando affiliate, Fox 35, every day in the weeks that followed for updates on the case. I was responsible for getting the latest video to air on our network. And for the past 14 years, one video has haunted me. This video, no more than three seconds long, is black-and-white surveillance footage of a ghost-like figure walking past a gate outside an apartment complex on the day that Jennifer disappeared. Who is this person? No one knows for sure. But there's one thing that's certain. This person, presumably male and wearing what looks like workman's clothes, knows what happened to Jennifer. I never imagined that 14 years later, this case would still be unsolved and that I'd be investigating it. Throwing myself into the weeds of it all, knocking on the doors of persons of interest and chasing down leads across Florida. Sure, I had covered dozens of missing person cases as an investigative reporter, but this one was different. There were no witnesses, no physical clues, and no suspects. Or so I thought. 
I'd soon learn that all these years later, this unsolved case is anything but cold. In fact, the investigation, by some accounts, is only just beginning. I landed at the airport with colleague and friend Jareen Tanner on a typical hot and humid Florida afternoon. Jareen, an experienced producer, could speak to anyone. We weren't interested in simply rehashing the facts of the case. We were there on the ground because we wanted to delve deeper into the mystery of Jennifer Cassie's disappearance. In order to do that, we had to start at the very beginning. Stay with me, we'll be back after this short break. New from the Fox News Podcast Network, a look back at the 2000 election. I will work for you every day and I will never let you down. Fox News presents Election Rewind 2000. Give me the opportunity to lead this nation and I will lead. Subscribe now at foxnewspodcasts.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Jennifer Kessie, just 24 years old, talked to her boyfriend around 10 p.m., but Tuesday she never made it to work and she hasn't been seen or heard from since. Tonight, her family and friends are searching, hoping for some good news. Tonight, new leads, new information and more evidence. Fox 35 Shannon Butler is live. She's been on the case since it broke. In fact, working sun up to sundown. Shannon, what do you have? Bloodhounds, dozens of officers, and a determined family have scoured this area around Jennifer Kessie's home. They're looking for some clues. Tonight, there are more leads than there were yesterday, but so far, none of them have brought her home. That was reporter Shannon Butler. I wanted to speak with her first, so I drove to meet her. Shannon was a reporter with Fox 35 in Orlando at the time Jennifer went missing. A storyteller by profession, Shannon's words draw you right in. She's deliberate and blunt, and also sincere with no pretenses, making you feel as though you've known her for years. Blonde and eye-catching, yes, but also a dogged reporter who would never be content perched in an anchor studio somewhere. Shannon was made to be in the field. One can argue that no one understands a story better than the local reporters who cover it. They live and breathe the news events of their town. They're objective observers, but also intimately connected to the people and places involved. Such was the case with Shannon. She'd been immersed in the mystery of Jennifer Kessie from day one. People don't just disappear, but they do. Because that was the day that I realized that people do really disappear. Mm-hmm. I had never covered a, one of that magnitude uh, mm-hmm. until that day. This is the only story of my career that it continues to have me lose some sleep. What do you remember from that time? So we were at the station. It was just like, you know, any other day we were getting ready for whatever, you know, news was going to hit that day. We had had our meeting and a fax 
came over, if you could believe that, saying that there was a missing, I mean, we called her a girl, she was in her 20s, but she was a missing girl. I remember that so well because it wasn't wasn't normal how we normally, you know, get these things. And usually in these cases, news media, we wait until law enforcement makes the decision that somebody is missing. Because anybody, you know, the, somebody's at the neighbor's house and you don't know. It's like, we're not going to go all out because some little kid is next door and you just hadn't seen him. We wait till law enforcement makes the decision. But for whatever reason, the gut feeling was there's something wrong. Jennifer was living at Mosaic at Millennia in the heart of Orlando, an apartment complex that was undergoing a conversion to condominiums. Jen was one of the first to buy and few people were living on the property at that time. The complex, which advertised as luxury and gated, was less than a mile away from the new mall of Millennia, a mecca for high-end shopping. The timeline goes like this. On Wednesday, January 18th, Jennifer leaves Orlando for a five-day vacation in St. Croix with her boyfriend, Rob Allen. The couple returns that Sunday, the 22nd, and spends the night in Fort Lauderdale at Rob's place, three hours away from Orlando. At 6 a.m. on Monday, January 23rd, Jen drives her black Chevy Malibu from Fort Lauderdale to Orlando, reporting straight to her job at Central Florida Investments Timeshare Company in Ocoee. This is a drive that Jen made often because she and Rob were dating long distance. By all accounts, the 23rd was a normal workday for Jen. She returns home to Mosaic at around 6 p.m. And later that evening, speaks on the phone with her father, her best friend, Lauren Dulligan, and her boyfriend, Rob Allen. That's the last time anyone hears from Jennifer. On Tuesday, the 24th, she never shows up for work. Our good friend is the CFO of where she worked. Even if she was five minutes late, she's calling work. I spoke with Jennifer's parents, Drew and Joyce Kessie, at their home outside of Tampa. She didn't call up in for work, but her managers knew who was our friend. Asked him, hey, Jennifer's not in, this and that. He called both of us, actually, Mm -hmm. independently. I was here in my office working. Joyce was up at Moffitt working. And he called me and he said, hey, Drew, Jen didn't show up for work and she had a meeting this morning. Is everything okay? And I'm like, yeah, as far as I'm concerned, I'm like, hold on, let me call her. She'll answer my phone. Because the rule was, when both kids got their car and their first phone, one rule, you answer that phone when your mother or father calls you. If you do not, the phone gets taken away, the car gets taken away, period. End of story. We were a little strict. <laughs> Sounds like my parents. So I said, hold on, I'll call you right back. Hung up called Jennifer's phone, and it went immediately to voicemail. That has never done. It usually rings four times. About what time was this? This was approximately 10.30, quarter to 11 in the morning, somewhere around there. Right there, right there I, knew, I, I, I know. I'm like, nah, that doesn't happen. So I called my friend back, and I'm like, Tom, I don't know. She's not answering, and it's gone right into voicemail. We're, we're coming out. I mean, it was, it was instant. We didn't even think. I called Logan at the gym because he was at the gym with a buddy. I'm like, get home. We can't, we can't track your sister. He's like, what do you mean? I'm like, nobody can track your sister. She needs to show up for work to Get home. We need to get to Orlando. I called her. 
drove up to pick her up, and Logan met his friend who was actually there, Travis, with the other phone. They zoomed out immediately. We were going to the police department. They said, come up and meet us at the sheriff's office. We no sooner got out of our car at the sheriff's office, our phone goes off. Hey, guess what? That's in the city, not ours. Go to the condo. We'll have a cop meet you. It's my understanding that you called somebody at Mosaic to check on Jen's apartment. Can you tell us what you did? Yeah, sure. Yeah. You know, we did many things. As soon as we started out, obviously, you know, we called police. Then we started to call hospitals. We started to call jails. But one of the first calls we made was to the, the, the office at Mosaic. Since we couldn't get in touch with Jennifer and no friends knew, couldn't get in touch or didn't see her that morning or what have you, I had asked the, I guess he was the maintenance manager. He was an office personnel, but he was on the maintenance side of things. I think his name what was, was his Brian. name? Brian, I think, Brian. And... I, you know, we had, we called and we asked, could you go down to Jennifer's condo and see her for cars parked in front of her condo, please? And he said, yeah, yeah, hold on. And, you know, he went down there and he said, well, there, there's, there's no car here. Her car's not here. And we're like, okay, we need you to go in her condo and see if anything's in her condo. And he said, well, I need another person. I can't go in alone. He said, fine, go get another person. Not a problem. Give a call back. And he was gone maybe five, 10 minutes or whatever. And we got back on the phone and he opened the door on the phone with us as he opened the door. And he said, no, you know, everything he told us that there was a bag sitting there and everything pretty much looks like a normal condo. And Jennifer was not within the confines. And we said, "Okay, uh, you know, we appreciate that. And then we continued on along with police and met an officer at her condo, told him, what we experienced up until that point that day, not being able to get along, get Jennifer on hold or no one could get a hold of her. And he looked, shrugged his shoulders and said, well, she probably had a fight with her boyfriend. She'll be back. And he walked out. And that's when Jennifer lost her opportunity, her best opportunity of being found. I had a pang in the pit of my stomach. The odds of solving a missing person case decreased by 50% if a solid lead isn't found within the first 48 hours. Everybody knew, no, this is not right. If they turned us off, we had to turn on. So you knew you knew right away something was wrong. I never, never, it never even crossed my mind that she was in a car accident. It was, oh my God, we have to find her. And it was like such an overwhelming, like, oh my God, we've got to find her. Like, what? Oh my God. And right away, we suspected the workers, because of what she had been sharing with us, they just leered, stared, stopped working. Joyce is referring to the maintenance workers at Mosaic, who were often in and out of Jennifer's condo for painting, touch-ups, and repairs. Apparently, Jen felt uncomfortable around them, so much so that she told her dad. We made it very clear to Jennifer, one word. They say one word to you, you call me, period. We do Jersey. <laughs> but she said, no, it's, it's what it is, is just uneasy. They'll just stop. And I'm walking to my car, what have you, and they're just going to stop. They never say anything. They never do anything. I'm like, okay, one word, one anything, and we need to know. So did she 
formally complain to management about this or just to you? No, just to us. Hey, Logan, it's Christina Corbin. Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Logan Kessie, Jen's younger brother, was the first one to show up at Mosaic looking for Jen at around 11.30 a.m. on the 24th. Logan now lives in Utah with a family of his own. When I got a call, well, I was in the gym. I come back out to the car, a bunch of missed calls from my folks. Call my dad. He was at the house, and he just said basically something's going on with Jen or Jen's not answering or something, something along those lines. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? Like nobody can get a hold of Jen. She didn't work. Tom called me, who was one of my parents' really good friends, and he was the CFO of her company. So it's unlike her, this and that, nobody can get a hold of her. And obviously to me, that immediately, like right now, I have goosebumps because that's not like her, obviously, at all. And I had a feeling initially. So I, I ran home. My dad's like, come home. Got home. We were chatting it up. He said, look, mom was at work. She's up in Tampa at Moffitt. So he's going to pick her up. I said, all right, I'm right behind you. I was going to go. So I'm driving up. and I called Travis, who was there with me on the weekend. I'm like, Trav, you'll never fucking believe. I'm telling him all this stuff. I'm like, I need you. Come to Orlando with me. My parents are going to be a little bit behind us, but I want to head out now. So we just went up to Tampa, me and my dad, and he picked up my mom, picked up Trav, and we cruised out there. And I think I beat him by, I don't know, half hour, an hour or something like that. But on the car ride there, it's just talking to my parents. We're calling hospital. We're calling everybody. We're calling friends. We just kind of like divvied it all up. You know what I mean? And just didn't sit right, you know? And then I get there and it, that's where I, it, it all started personally with workers. You know, I get there. Everything looks finer, unit and all that kind of stuff, except for you could tell, like, I, I think she got ready for work because there was clothes out, a towel out, a shower, whatever. So whether it was the night before that morning, like, the, the, long story short, the unit looked regular like her apartment looked regular so hop downstairs just walking around the complex when logan arrived at jen's condo that morning he felt uneasy about some of the maintenance workers we see a van sitting you know in the front which we parked next so i didn't notice there's two people in it but come down i see there's two two workers in it i'm a little hostile at that point because nobody can get a hold of her sister it's been a few hours obviously the alarm bells are freaking Everybody out because no nothing in the hospitals. We don't, you know, nothing for the police. No arrests. Not in the hospital. No car. Nothing like that. So I immediately just start asking everybody around. You know, uh, I see like a neighbor. I don't know if it was a neighbor. Somebody pull away in the car. I see this guy down there next to our car. I'm like, well, shit. Okay. I say, hey, you know, knock on the door. What's up? Have you seen the girl lives up there? No, it was just. A- I asked if they seen the girl, there was no, then they didn't want to look at me, they didn't want to make eye contact at me, and you, you know, I'm, I'm banging on their door, open the door, and they're not, they're not acknowledging me, they're not opening their window, they're not opening the door, there's, there's just nothing, okay? So that's when it started to get really weird to us, and to me and Travis, like what? Like answer the fucking door, have you seen this girl, do you know where she's at? Like nothing. So they didn't roll down the window, they didn't open the nothing, door? Nothing, 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 nothing. So you're not, you're knocking on the window, you're trying to talk to these guys, they're not even acknowledging nothing. you. Nothing. And so then what happened? So we just start going our next, walking around the back side of the building, and that's where we saw another worker, and went up to him, and he was speaking, you know, I said, hey, hey, let me ask you a question, hey, let me talk to you, I got a question for you, have you seen the girl up here? No, we're frantic, mind you, so it might have alarmed, but hey, have you seen the girl up there, you know, no, no, I don't know, I'm nothing, nothing, and then, um, you know, I'm like, well, who are the guys, I'm just asking a bunch of questions, like, what's going on, who are the guys in the front, why don't you see her, like, just, you know, going through it all, and he starts, you know, in the middle of kind of drilling and maybe making him freaked out, he starts to, oh, no, 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 no English, no English, no English. This is the weird thing. And then he decides to like essentially kneel 
and he's talking to us kneeling and no English. And we're like, what do you need? It was just the weirdest encounter between both of them. And that's why to this day, from our parents to us, to everybody, that's where the issue and the problem lies is these workers that were working on the building that were there that were never even interviewed. It must be noted that several of the maintenance workers at Mosaic at that time did not speak English. Some were employed by Mosaic, while others were working as subcontractors. Many of them were also undocumented workers, according to sources. So, long story short, that all, I, I, we're talking to this guy, it's all weird, I'm getting ready to honestly, we're, I'm, I'm, I'm basically getting ready to, to beat the shit out of the guy because it was weird. I have goosebumps talking about it now, it just didn't seem right. So to this day, we don't know who that guy was who was kneeling on I him. have no clue. Logan was familiar with the mosaic. In fact, he stayed at Jen's apartment with friends the weekend before she disappeared. Can you talk about what you guys were doing there, sort of your experience uh, that weekend yeah, staying in the condo? For sure. Flat out, it was a going away party. It was, you know, partying, going out. I drive to different bars, just something different than Tampa. Obviously, grew up in Tampa, same shit, different day. Wanted something different. Jen, I helped her move to a new place on Thanksgiving. So it was awesome. I liked it. And it was close to everything. It was just cool. You know, I knew she wasn't going to be there. She said, Hey, you want to use it? I was like, hell yeah, let's go. So just went there, had three buddies there. We just hang out, party, did the whole eye drop. All your normals, the how at the moon, like, you know, just hanging out for the weekend, did her pool at the complex. And how many of you were there at the apartment? At the apartment it was two, me and two buddies staying there. And then I had another buddy who was her ex-boyfriend, Matt Sullivan, that came and hung out with us. Who was one of my best friends. Cause I'm best friends with his brother my whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've known Matt my whole life. So he lived in Orlando. That's actually, they were dating prior to all that. But so he was still in Orlando. So he came and hung out. But just staying there was me, my buddy Trav, and my buddy Marlon. Tell me, when was the last time you spoke to Jennifer? We spoke when she got back. She got back into town. We got back to her condo. It was that Monday. I was at my parents' house living there because I was getting ready to move. So she just called the house line. We were all chatting with her, catching up, you know? Talked to my parents and talked to me, told her thank you. We had a great weekend. Told her my buddy Trav left his phone there. Please mail it, you know, all that kind of stuff. No problem. I'll get it on my way to work in the morning. Just normal, like catching up. It was awesome. Just heard about her trip, you know. Hmm. And then obviously just the big thing was please get Trav's phone in the mail. because We left it there. I'm not driving back to Orlando. Mm -hmm. This was an important detail. Jen's cell phone, iPod, purse, and briefcase, as well as Travis's cell phone, were missing from her condo. According to investigators, this suggested that the crime likely occurred after Jen left her condo on the morning of January 24th. So you're obviously, that's exactly what we all think happened as a family. She got ready for work, she shut her door. The minute she shut her door from her car where something happened. I next spoke with Jennifer's boyfriend at the time, Rob Allen, at his home in Fort Lauderdale. He and Jen had been dating for about a year before she disappeared. Even though the two were long distance, things were getting pretty serious. For Rob, the events of January 24, 2006 are seared in his memory, as if they happened yesterday. We hadn't seen each other for New Year's, and we said, instead of seeing each other in New Year's, my best friend, best friend's family has a timeshare in St. Croix, and he invited Jennifer and I dad. So Jen came to my house on Wednesday and then we flew out the next day, Thursday, and flew down to St. Croix and spent Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then flew back on the Sunday. 
And like any Caribbean excursion, I mean, you can imagine, you know, it's fun in the sun kind of thing. But, you know, it was great. And I remember Adam pulling me aside and he's like, oh, you, you're in deep here or something. I remember him making some comment into the fact that I can see that you're in love with her and just accept it, enjoy it. She's great. You guys are great together. And like I said, we just had a great time. What happened when you got back? That Sunday evening, she was like, okay, I'll stay with you Sunday and then I'll drive to work on the Monday. And I was like, okay, that's cool. We always filled a gas tank up on Sunday evening because with it being at at night, she'd rather uh, me go with her, fill up a gas tank so she didn't have to do it Monday morning on her own because she would um, inevitably leave, you know, five o'clock in the morning. So that's how safety conscious she is, that she wouldn't fill a gas tank up at five o'clock in the morning, female on her own, you know? Wow. She worked Monday. It was a regular day. I know she was busy. She had a lot of projects that she had to deal with. I was busy. I had an event that evening. We text and talk periodically during the day, like we did every day. And then that evening, we had a conversation, as we always did. And she'd call me normally on the way home from work. She had a 40-minute commute or 30-minute commute that we'd talk. I mean, everything was the same as it always was. Just missing each other. Wish we could be together. Wish we were still on holiday. Regular couple stuff. Then that evening, I know... I was busy and I think she kind of felt that I wasn't reinforcing how much I missed her and how much I cared for her. Sure. We had a little bit of a disagreement there and I was just kind of like, hey, look, I miss you. And she was like, I don't think you miss me as much as I miss you and that type of stuff. But last time I talked to her was just before 10 o'clock because she was going to bed. She said she was tired. Mm -hmm. And this is where I disagree with the officers. Like, you know, they were like, oh, she would have gone out at night. And I'm trying to tell them like, She wouldn't have gone out at night unless she communicated either with one of her parents, either with myself or with one of her friends. She wouldn't just walk out of a condo at night. This is the girl that wouldn't even go get gas at night without me. So tell us what happened on the 24th. She would normally text me or call me on her commute into work. And uh, I didn't get off text. And I mean... I used to look forward to those phone calls or those texts. I mean, it kind of reaffirms that someone th- is thinking about you, someone cares for you. And, and uh, I didn't get it. And I was like, oh, that's kind of strange. I did think it was weird. And uh, I called her. And I didn't hear from her. And um, then I texted her. And then I drove into work. And on every Tuesday at my old job, I used to have a staff meeting. And... Um, I just texted her again before I went into the staff meeting. I was like, hey, look, have a great day. Hope you're doing, you know, call me when you get a chance or text me when you get this. I remember in the staff meeting, my boss at the time, myself and him, we had kind of a acrimonious relationship. And I remember going in the staff meeting afterwards and being like, I got to ask Jen's opinion. I just want to vent, vent about something he'd said or something that he'd asked me to do. And I called her again or texted her before I went to lunch and I still hadn't heard from her. And, you know, I wanted to blow some steam and say, hey, look, what do you think about this? She was aware of my work situation and uh, I didn't hear from her. And then I went to lunch and that's when Joyce had contacted me and then reached out to Jen's friend, Lauren, to see if anyone had heard from her and no one had heard from her. And I was like, well, that's strange. So I just went to lunch and then Logan called me that afternoon and was like, hey, look, we're dri- I'm driving up to Orlando. Something's not right. Then it started to hit, hit me. And uh, that's when I was like, okay, I'm going up there. By late afternoon on the 24th, 
Jennifer's parents, Drew and Joyce Cassie, her brother Logan, boyfriend Rob Allen, Rob's mother, and Jen's friends, including her sorority sisters, had gathered at her condo, which became this makeshift command center in the search. We had, at rush hour on that Tuesday, we had flyers printed already. We had volunteers, her sorority sisters and friends, standing at that pivotal intersection, passing out flyers. Shannon remembers arriving at Jennifer's condo. We went in and we backed the truck in. We thought, well, that's her apartment. And you could see quite a bit of activity. I mean, people had converged for the family and the friends quickly. I will never, ever forget the look on Joyce's face when I pulled in that parking lot, never. I mean, you have seen, you know, a a horrible anguish, car accidents, people die in car accidents, but I didn't know this woman. The look on her face in that stairwell, I could draw a picture of her and exactly what she looked like. And that was, it was horrible, horrible. Shannon Butler and her camera crew were doing whatever they could to get the word out, and fast. I hope it's not a tragedy. I hope it's just that somebody's being mean and holding her against her own will, and I pray to God for her and her family. Her friends passed out these flyers, hoping that someone has seen her or knows something. Please bring her back. If you have her, please give her back. We would give anything to have her back, anything at all. Jennifer, we will find you. I will find you. We love you. We miss you, and you will come home to us and just hang in there. We're close, and we'll get you. 48 hours later, on January 26th, there comes a break. Her 2004 Chevy Malibu was found at this apartment complex near her condo. The 24-year-old was last heard from Monday night. This is the first big break in her case. Today, when that car was found, we would like to have found Jennifer with that car alive and well. If you leave the front entrance of Mosaic, make a left turn on Conroy Road and drive east about one mile, the neighborhood changes pretty quickly. A high crime area with a few strip malls, convenience stores, and an apartment complex called Huntington on the Green. That's where a woman called in to report a black Chevy Malibu parked in the lot that matched the description of Jen's car on the news. The police were on it, and so was Shannon. Well, knowing where the car was, it is not the best you know, part of town, and she wouldn't have been there. So you knew that someone had parked it there. But I remember the trunk of the car, you know, opening. And I remember the, oh God, is she in that trunk? because you didn't see her. I mean, she wasn't in the front seat and she wasn't anywhere near the car, but the trunk, I remember the trunk, like, oh my God, we opened this trunk and she's gonna be in there, because where is she? The car's there, she's gotta be with it. Mm-hmm. And uh, you could tell when you know crime scene was walking around that car that there was nothing of that significant in there. You know, they took the boyfriend to the car to see what his reaction would be on that. And I think about that so many years later now, every time I think of Rob, I think about like, how could you do that? I mean, how horrible for this guy, right? His girlfriend is missing, He's his, he was there immediately with his mother. So his behavior didn't suggest anything. And I understand what the officers are doing, right? That's always the first, right? It's always the boyfriend or it's always the girlfriend. Um, but I think about like how 
awful that must have been for him because he must have known what they were thinking. The black Chevy Malibu belonged to Jennifer, but she wasn't in it. Nothing appeared to be out of place, and there was no obvious physical evidence inside the car. A DVD player that Rob had bought Jen was still sitting in the back seat. There is no blood in that car. There is no blood on the street. There is no blood in her apartment. There is no blood on the stairs. There is no broken fingernail. There's no earring. There's, how is that possible? And over the next several weeks, in homes across the country, people would soon learn more about the face on the missing person poster. The student who graduated from UCF with honors. The friend who loved the Dave Matthews band and fashion. The sister who never missed her brother's soccer games. And the daughter who lived for family holidays, especially Christmas, and confided so much in her parents. Everyone seemed to know a Jennifer. In our next episode of House of Broken Dreams, we examine new evidence found on and in Jennifer's car. It looked like someone was thrown down on the top of the hood, arms spread out, and then dragged back, almost like off the hood, to the point where you can almost see fingers scribbling down the, the hood. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.